I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. We have a special treat today because it's the first time I've ever been joined by two authors at once. Um, yeah. Um, Amina Tussaud and Anne Friedman are the hosts of Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties, and they wrote their new book, Big Friendship, together. Welcome. It seems like every friendship right now is long-distance. Don't you know it? Don't you Very know much. It? Talking over each other on the Zoom like everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> so you two have, like, really modeled a way... Uh, to to even like see the friend who uh, lives a mile away and who we can't see anymore. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I'm really glad that we worked through our problems before a global pandemic happened yeah. uh, because it means we can communicate better through it. That's that's huge. Um, and and when I think about it, like I haven't hugged any of my friends since March and I'm not alone. Only those of us who live with roommates probably or have, have really nice pods. Um, and I was really thinking about that when I read your book, um, just how, how that weird physical connection is and isn't a part of it. Yeah, or like so many routines, you know, like if I, I think about my own routines with friends who live near me and it's like the friend I always go on walks with or, you know, the friend who I see for happy hour every couple of weeks or whatever. I mean, some of those things I feel like we've been able to do at like a safe distance, but some of them are just off the table. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly hugging at your book launch is... No. Not in the cards. Um, yeah, just physically being in the same space on the, you know, the day we launched this book is no longer in the cards. And, you know, we understood that in March and it's, it has not gotten easier to accept that truth. Of course, of course. Um, 
tell me what capital B, capital F, big friendship is. Uh, this is a term that we uh, made up. I mean, that's a fair thing to say, right? We just oh, made yeah. up this term. I mean, um, because other words that we use for close friendships, um, among them besties, which we use in the tagline of our mm-hmm. podcast, or um, best friends or BFF, didn't feel appropriate to the type of friendship that we are in. Um, they did not really convey the fact that it is a long-term adult intimate relationship with mm-hmm. ups and downs and, um, you know, something about bestie or BFF just sounds like fun, easy, young. Um, and that is just, that's not our experience of friendship. And then there's also something about even the term best friend and it's implied exclusivity where you could only have one. And that also did not track with our experience. And so we were looking for a term that felt like a better fit. Yeah. Um, and, and there's no better testament to a capital B big friendship than the fact that you collaborated on a podcast, but you also wrote a book together delivered from the same point of view, which is, is actually really revolutionary in this, in this game. How did, how (laughs) is my question? Yeah. You know, I think, um, Hmm. Let me, um, let me organize my thoughts better. I think that, you know, Anne and I have been in both like a private conversation and a public conversation about a lot of ideas in this book for a really, really, really long time. And it was, it was a very natural fit, you know, that we would ultimately explore these ideas um, in a book as opposed to doing it on a podcast because it just, I think that a lot of the issues that we were trying to muddle through, whether they were in our own friendship or the kind of, you know, thinking and feeling that it requires um, that you have before you can honestly just be articulate about the subject is something that just lends itself better to writing. Yeah. It need, you know, like you need more breathing room and um, yeah, like you cannot be writing. Sorry to the podcasters. Um, (laughs) of which I am one myself Um, you know and I think that in a lot of ways it was also just a natural evolution of our collaboration we are two people who really enjoy working together we had done a lot of you know smaller um, like tighter writing together and so the challenge of oh can we do a book together was um, from my, you know, my perspective, at least, it's like, yes, more, uh, more structured hours to spend together. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think the friendship can sustain that, um, you know, and I think that also what we were really trying to do, like back to Anne's, um, you know, like what she was saying about vocabulary, is really that it was really important to us to write this book in one voice, because the common experience and the common truth that we were trying to get at is one that we have to share. We have read some incredible fiction about the complicated friendships that women can have. That is like a really richly and deeply explored, um, you know, like place in in fiction. In nonfiction, there are some incredible books about the experience of being a friend that are, um, you know, like very one-sided or like a one-sided account of what it's like to have a friend. And 
where we really saw a gap was that there was nowhere where um, two people were talking at the same time about being in the same friendship. And so many, um, so many of the ideas and really things that we expand on are, you know, relate back to the pain points that we have had in our own friendship. And so the most honest way to tell that story is to tell it together. Yeah. And I, I, I remember listening to um, the Call Your Girlfriend episode about the writing of the book and realized how jealous I was that when you write together, you can't be self-deprecating in the same way because if you do that to yourself, you're also implicating your friend. Uh, I mean, it's funny that you took that away because I feel like my process is always to hate it until the moment when I can't do anything else to it. <laughs> and and I actually feel like it had a really, I mean, I mean, you can speak for yourself, but I actually feel like it, it had a really negative effect where I was like, I don't like this yet. And I don't want to lie about the fact that this is my emotional reaction to all this work that we've done. But like, the truth is I'm not happy with it yet. Or the truth is I haven't like um, made my peace with the fact that this is the best we were able to do in the time we have. And, and that is... Um, that is just like my own process as like a writer on my own. And you really, like, I really did. Um, I really feel bad that I brought my like toxic writer energy into this collaboration <laughs> where I was just like for a really, really long time. I was just like, um, this is garbage and should be used as kindling. And I guess we have to turn something in. And that is not to say that um, that is how I would react to the same words with, if they had been written by someone else or if I was reviewing them, but I'm like, sure. again, my personal sickness and process is that. So <laughs> full apology to my friend Aminati So for putting up with that on my end. Well, you know, it's interesting hearing you say that, Anne, because I think that um, one, I would not qualify it as toxic writer energy. I think that of all of the things, you know, like, again, we work in, we work in a lot of different formats and other ways. And I think that the trust that we have built into um, the way that we work obviously came in really handy in this um, in this process. I think that for me, you know, someone who um, writing is not my primary outlet, it was really intense and interesting to see how someone else does it because mm -hmm. you know I have my own uh, I have my own process which is very much internalized, right? It's very much like I also hate it. I would like to turn it into kindling. It's hate everything about it. I'm, you know, I'm like, I only tell myself that and the self-loathing is deep within and no one else needs to know about it. And there was something really liberating actually of being with someone else who confirmed um, the, like the innermost feelings that you had about your work. I, you know, obviously we have the benefit of many years of working together. So I don't take it personally. If you say the thing is garbage, I was like, great, we made the thing together. If it's garbage, it's both of our faults. Um, but also, but also, yeah, I think that it just, you know, for us, it really just speaks to a deeper, um, we, we have found a good way to be colleagues and collaborators to each other. And I think that all of those years of doing that on the podcast and other things, really um it's the only reason for me at least that i was able to write a book with someone else i don't think that this is a process i can replicate at <laughs> all with with anyone else in like any kind of capacity that people are co-writers i don't think i would do well with you know like the writer researcher model 
I don't think I would do well in the ghostwriter model. I don't think I, you know, I was like, I am truly a trash person and I need, <laughs> I need to just experience my trash alone. But um, here is one person who like, they've seen the grossest parts of my process and they're still here. We know each other's trash. It's true. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. And, and I, you make such good points in the book about how the process of falling in friend love is is very much the same as falling in big L love and or you know any variation in between and and that it you know you have your origin story you have the the times when you were kind of actively courting i would say um and, and making plans and making sure that the other person knew that you were important to them. Um, tell me about how the, tell me about the role of friendship in this scenario that we don't usually allow ourselves to like in, in the rom-com mode, I guess. I mean, one thing that we really, we really came to this idea that um, the early days of friendship are a courtship or are so exciting because um, it's likely that you really are like filling a need for each other or you are both kind of finding yourselves wanting something next or wanting something more out of your life. And so um, it really took us the writing process to kind of say like, oh, it wasn't just some good luck that we met <laughs> through a friend. And it wasn't just coincidental that we got very close very fast. There are some big reasons why we were instantly compatible as friends. And we could very quickly sense that like, um, this was a person we wanted to be into the future with. Um, and I, I do think that there is something very, very powerful about the early days of friendship where um, someone is meeting you as you are and also as you want to be, but they don't have that perspective of who you were in the past right. or the thing, the things that, you know, um, an old friend would have witnessed firsthand. It's sort of on you to translate and describe those experiences. And it is, it feels really good to be able to present yourself as you are in this moment to a new person and to think about um, what you want to highlight about your story and what you want to hear about them. And, um, and, and so that kind of world building at the beginning of a friendship is um, something that we, I don't know, I guess had the privilege of exploring by, by rewinding our own story a little bit. That's lovely. This podcast is brought to you by Counterpoint, publishers of The Disaster Tourist by Yoon Ko Un. A fast-paced eco-thriller with a fierce feminist sensibility, The Disaster Tourist introduces a fresh new voice that engages with the global dialogue around climate activism, dark tourism, and the Me Too movement. Yona is a top representative for Jungle, a cutting-edge travel agency specializing in tourism to destinations devastated by disaster and climate change. At least she was, until she found herself at the mercy of a predatory colleague. Now on the verge of losing her job, she's given a proposition. Take a paid vacation to the island of Moy and pose as a tourist to assess its profitability. When she uncovers a plan to fabricate an extravagant catastrophe, she must choose. Prioritize the callous company to whom she's dedicated her life 
or embrace a fresh start in a powerful new position. Refinery29 calls The Disaster Tourist a mordantly witty novel that reads like a highly literary, ultra-incisive thriller. So if you are looking for an elevated end-of-summer beach read, don't miss The Disaster Tourist. On sale now, wherever you buy books. Of course, um, a big part of your story is, is about you two supporting each other um, and the realization that you call shine theory, that um, it's all about support, not competition, um, which is so obvious and yet so freeing. And it became a thing that everyone wanted to take credit for uh, coming up with, fair. Which, which feels like a weird way of supporting each other. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that at just a very basic level, we ingest a lot of cultural messaging that um, women are really catty with each other and they're mean and nasty. And, um, you know, and very conveniently, it's very gendered, very conveniently. There is one gender that is catty and there's just another gender that is a, you know, like when they have strife, it's over high levels and, you know, like whatever, it's like nation building. Um, and that is just something that I, you know, I was, that was just not true in my life. It was just not true in my life. And it's not because I was some sort of evolved baby feminist. It was just not true. And I think that I, in my life, I have just witnessed so many, um, so many people being generous at points that they didn't need to be, or felt really supported in ways that were very consequential to me. And I think that my big takeaway from that was that, oh, this works. It always works. And, you know, it was not a novel, um, shine, there's nothing novel about shine theory. People have been supporting each other through, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would say, uh, you know, people have been supporting each other through time and space forever and ever and ever. I think that the reason that that idea traveled as far as it did is that it really was about you know, it really challenged that stereotype that we are confronted with so many times, you know, it's not because Anne and I are two people who exceptionally support each other. It's actually because, <laughs> oh, everyone uh, built into their healthiest friendships is doing this. They are deeply invested in each other for the long term. And it feels really good. And it feels just deeply transformative. And, um, you know, and it's been it's been a really good feeling to just, again, have that confirmed, like, oh, this, this weird thing that we do in our friendship is actually <laughs> very common to everyone's friendship. We, there is nothing special about the friendship that I have with Anne. There's nothing exceptional about it. We are really just sharing our story in service of having a larger conversation about how other people are doing friendship. And I think that that's what's been so exciting about talking about this book and about um, being able to point to concrete places where we say, oh, this is really deeply meaningful and important to me. And guess what? A hundred million other people have the exact same experience in their friendship. It just, it, like, I love, I love this kind of bias confirmation. It makes me feel like, um, it makes me feel like a human with uh, two feet on the ground. I mean, and, and when I was reading about uh, Shine Theory, I 
took a second step back and thought, oh, I have two or three friends who look over every important work email <laughs> that I'm going to send. Um, tell me how to negotiate. Um, and I am not alone. I am not special like either of you. Um, but it's a, it's a real wonderful thing to just take a step back and realize. Tell me about when things started to get a little dicier in your friendship, because you go, you, you're very honest in, in this book about the ups and the downs. Um, and what I was struck by was that the things that we think are petty and little, obviously, when you take a step back, yes, they build up and they become something else and they represent something so much larger. Tell me about that. I mean, that's exactly it, right? I mean, I think little ways of missing each other that in and of themselves were not devastating had a cumulative effect on us. And, um, and some of that was because we both recognized like, oh, we don't feel great about that in real time and didn't address it. And sometimes like one or both of us, or sorry, one or the other of us didn't actually recognize that that felt bad to the other person. And so um, this is an interesting question to also consider when you think about you saying, oh, the two of you are really good at being long distance friends because it's true that like we had already been comfortable for a number of years and had stayed really close despite living on opposite sides of this continent. but. The fact is, once you start missing each other, um, or once you start having like a communication breakdown, not being together in person makes it a lot harder to um, to figure out what to do about it, or it makes it easier to ignore is maybe a better way to put it. Um, and I think that for us, there was just this compounding effect of like, you know, missing each other in some ways that were truly little, and then continuing to miss each other in bigger ways. And then as we declined to talk about it or maybe didn't want to recognize it, um, those things just became more and more exacerbated. We each had our own narrative about what the other was going through in this moment. Um, you know, we each were trying to reach out and make overtures and fix it. Um, sometimes explicitly saying that, but like most of the time, not really. And then continuing to miss each other more as the overture wasn't received exactly the way the person extending it hoped it would be. And, and yeah, it really just kind of became this pattern of um, compounding, compounding things. And so that to us felt um, like something we hadn't really seen represented in a lot of books or movies about friendship. Um, and we kind of found ourselves wishing, almost wishing that there had been some big specific problem that we could talk about like some one concrete right. thing and and that just wasn't true for us and I think you know as Amina was saying we wanted we wanted to really talk about our friendship in a robust way in a book and not on the podcast because you know it really does take that many pages to kind of explain a dynamic that is complex and not obvious so and yet one that we've I imagine that we've all had in, in various relationships, um, friendships or, or otherwise. 
um, you, you referred to um, the act of trying to be more in it um, as, as stretching, which I appreciate <laughs> um, that, that you can try to bend more so that you don't break. Yeah, you know, I think that the just this idea that Anne was was expanding on a little uh, a little earlier about it it not being some big dramatic moment, you know, like we write about the uh, the the like marriage equivalent of this is like you walk in on your friend with you know like your spouse or whatever. It's like we don't have that, and right. I think that um, and part of the difficulty of talking about missing each other in these ways too is that we are not like there is again a cultural expectation that this kind of small pettiness is um is something that like younger women do or it's something you should have left behind in high school and we categorize it as drama very very quickly and that just you know is very dismissive and the truth is that um you know not only teenage girls experience <laughs> drama and that drama sometimes is a shorthand for uh, an unwillingness actually to explore a place where one person is not happy and i think that in in any kind of relationship if the person that you are in the relationship with is telling you that they are not feeling heard or that they're upset or that something feels weird even if you don't respect it, the only way that the friendship will survive, the relationship will survive is to address it. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and when we came up with this like metaphor for stretching, I think that so much of this book is just trying to give language to feelings that we all have and things that are, you know, sometimes very subtle or just, you know, hard to, hard to quantify or hard to categorize. And the stretching metaphor, I think like came to us like very, 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 easily and quickly because you know there there is a kind of stretch that feels very good mm -hmm. um where you're you're pushing yourself and you're feeling you know like your world is being expanded and you are you are literally watching yourself become better at something that you've always yearned to do and there is also a kind of stretch that is really uncomfortable and and we wanted to you know talk about all of those things because the the truth is that like in any relationship that you are, you are stretching each other constantly, you know, and, and sometimes to very positive effects and other times to very negative effects. And, um, and it's hard to tell, it's hard to tell where conflicts can come into this if you are also not both in a really, you know, robust conversation about how you are feeling or the effects that they're having on you. I think that, you know, the, the other benefit of, of being able to explore explore all of the places that our friendship was really hard is that we got to get on the same page about what was happening. You know, so much yeah. of um, so much of friendship conflict, in my experience at least, is a very internalized, um, you know, from my own perspective sure. view of what is going on. Because you know, both because um, you know, I have a real inability to just ask uncomfortable questions. Hey, like, I feel bad. Do you feel bad? <laughs> that, you know, I'm like, I'm working on that. And also there, you know, there's just like a sense of danger, I think, in friendships about if you go there, what does it mean about your friendship? That is not the same kind of message that we get about other relationships, like romantic relationships or like family relationships, where there's more of an expectation of 
you like there are frameworks for how you talk about things that are hard and with friendship you really feel that if you go out on this limb and you end up there alone it uh it's not going to be good for everyone yeah and i it it took me reading your book to to really realize how it's it's really one of the few relationships that people are the culture at least um is okay with saying well that didn't work walk away and um that's that's not how it is at all um so speaking of uncomfortable stretching um I imagine that I am not alone um, in that in the past few weeks, I've been having more uncomfortable discussions um, with my non-white friends than ever before. And you talk a lot about how your interracial relationship um, is work, is work and, um, and, and it seems like you were um, a step ahead of the rest of us who are just catching up now. Yeah, I mean, hmm. I don't know that we're a step ahead. I think that for um, people of color and Black people in particular, having uh, feeling stretched by the way that racism and race shows up in friendship is not like a this month kind of thing. Of course not. <laughs> Um, I, it's also interesting to talk about this term of the stretch in context of race, because, um, you know, one thing that became really apparent as we tried to put language to some of these experiences is that, um, something like dealing with race and racism within a friendship is fundamentally different than other kinds of life shifts or emotional challenges that we might describe with a metaphor like stretching. And that's because we live in a world that is deeply racist and there's no world in which our friendship is removed from that. You know, we are a black person and a white person in a white centric and anti-black racist society. You know I mean? We're not changing that tomorrow. Um, and so really looking at like, yeah, on a level of feelings, I think it can feel feel similar to other stretches um, in the sense that it requires difficult conversations um, or difficult decisions um, in really different ways from both parties, especially when you're talking about an interracial friendship that includes a white person, because not all of them do. Mm -hmm. um, but it fundamentally is just a different thing. And, um, and for us, um, you know, I, I really learned so much about the ways that race has been a factor in a lot of other things that happened in our friendship because we had this um, long running discussion looking back and um, after having created a new vocabulary for some of these things. And just because we didn't talk about it in real time doesn't mean that race wasn't at play in all of these other instances. And I think, um, you know, in that chapter in particular, what we're trying to show is like, yes, we need some concrete examples of how this shows up. But the truth of the matter is, um, if you are a white person in an interracial friendship, you, you very likely have missed a lot of those times. Um, and the question that I have just for myself is, how do I continually work to 
not miss those things in real time and to be um, an initiator of the conversation about those things when I do notice them. Um, and also be receptive to the conversation when, when I have fully missed it and, um, yeah. and show up and, and be part of it. So. And I, I think it's, I think it's so interesting that you two went to couples therapy. I mean, it's, you're shaking your head. <laughs> no, I, it, because it still feels so strange to say, you know, it's a very, um, it's a very, uh, it's a thing that I'm still reconciling a lot of my, my feelings about. And it's interesting because I like, I'm not shy about talking about so many things and I'm certainly not shy about talking about the experience of going to therapy with my friends, but it just still feels very out there, you know? And I feel really, um, I feel that it was such a privilege for us that we were able to devote the time and the money to this because that is, you know, therapy is so inaccessible to so many people and it was truly a stretch for us as well. Mm -hmm. But devoting the time and the energy and the money to it was such a, it was, you know, it was a literal financial investment in the, in the well-being of our friendship. And, and not having a lot of models for how do you repair a friendship that is on you know like that is on the rocks or how do you how do you address um really not being on the same page or not being able to communicate with someone that you are friends with i don't know that i would recommend therapy for everyone because i think that even in our own experience there you know there was a lot of false starts there was you know a lot of stumbling around there there is also like so many structural issues that come with that there the, the world the only world in which we are able to do that is that we basically set our own schedule and we uh, show up at the same job you know and that is not um that is not an experience that a lot of friends will have and so you know it was interesting even like trying to find therapists that address this because there is no mm -hmm. um, you know when you google uh you know like couples therapist they're very much like, here's how we're going to save your marriage, or right. here's how we're going to make you a better parent, and here's how you're going to be less of an annoying child to your parents or a problem. There was not really a place to go to for um, help. I, I don't know how to talk to my friends. Who is the therapist for that? And, um, you know, and a lot of just the, the false starts of this process was that we, we had to find that person. And every conversation, you know, with every therapist that we, we try to interview for this was, do you know how to do this? Is there a framework for doing this? Are we, is what is the thing that we're doing weird? How can you help us? And, you know, and we heard so many varying answers there. And again, the, the fact that this feels extravagant and weird to me, I think does compound the problem of how do you, what are frameworks for repairing friendship, you yeah. know, and what are frameworks um, for, for finding a way out of a communication conundrum? Like Anne and I are two people who cannot go to bed if we do not feel fully self-expressed with the world <laughs> and I, you know, the experience of not being able to understand what we were each saying was really deeply painful. And so much of the process of therapy is them just saying back to you the thing that you said and making you see, uh, you know, like every way that the other person is not understanding you, which honestly for me is even in my own personal therapy is something that makes me want to run out the door. It's like, I thought I was really clear about what I said. How are you interpreting this differently? Um, you know, ultimately it was something that was, I, 
I think was really hard, but also I gained a kind of insight and self-knowledge that I don't know that I would have gotten at any other way. So, you know, for that alone, I am thankful that we figured out uh, therapy with Brett. And uh, for those of us who can't afford that, we have your wonderful book. (laughs) Big Friendship. Uh, Buy it. Tell your friends about it. Uh, Listen to Call Your Girlfriend. Thank you so much to both of you. This is a pleasure. Thank you, Maris. Um, Just before we go, um, do you have any book recommendations you would like to pass on to the listeners? Yes. Definitely. Um, I love, I love talking about other people's books. It's my Mm. happiest place. Um, But before we even do that, I just want to say thank you for having us, Maris. You um, were such a really important part of Anne and I's Tumblr relationship in the early, like, 2010s. You really, really, really were. And um, you're just someone who has always been such a big part of, you know, my my feelings about like writing and uh, being someone who reads books and being someone, you know, like you are someone who just like very much um, enables uh, a kind of like exchange of ideas that I think is really important. And, you know, you give like great book recommendations. So means a lot. And writing your thing about ambition this week has also been like, really, I have not stopped thinking about it. So thank you for writing that. Um, so now I can get to my book recommendation. Uh, in in the spirit in the spirit of the Maris review, I would like to recommend *Luster* by Raven Leilani, um, a book that will be out in a couple of weeks. But don't be a fool; pre-order it now because yeah. then it's like you gave yourself a gift from the past. Uh-huh. It's lovely, and it is this really just Raven is an amazing writer. This is her debut novel. The novel is so sharp and so funny and tender in so many places and um, is about basically a young black woman who um, becomes embroiled in someone else's uh, open relationship, their open marriage. It, you know, it has all of the hallmarks of the messy inside life of young people that I love to read about. And I think that she gets to this in just a really interesting and sharp way and um, is someone that I want to read so much more about. So Raven Leilani, Luster, buy it now, and buy then it. you can feel like you were part of a big book this summer. There you go. Mm. And do you have? Okay. I, I've been thinking about what are books that I have found myself recommending um, over the past, I don't know, six months or a year. And um, the first is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, which I have recommended to all of my writer friends who are trying to do ambitious things with like voice and structure. And um, I just found it so compelling on a heart level and a brain level. (laughs) Um, So that is one that I have recommended and talked about at length with many people I care about. Me too. Um, Yeah, right? There's just so much there. And in fact, um, it's one of those books where I know I at one point owned multiple copies and they're now just like out circulating, you know, in the world. Um, so yes, that one. Um, Adrienne Marie Brown's Pleasure Activism is another book that I yes. think about almost like a reference book. And I mean that as a huge compliment. Like it is 
the density of resource and insight in that book, um, it's really interesting. That is one that I will not loan out because I just, it needs to be a fixture on my shelf because I do find myself going back to it again and again. Um, and I think it is a real Bible for those of us who want to play a long game when it comes to bringing about the world that we, we really want to see. Um, she is a real leader in that, in that department. So that's another one that I find myself recommending a lot, however, not loaning out. That's, that's I, good I to have boundaries. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to make the point of when um, we were both reading um, in the dream house at the same time and you got to the end before me. And I remember you texting me that the end was so good that you threw the book across the room. I threw I it. Like, I remember you saying that and I was like, okay, I'm going to keep reading this and I'll get there. And when I got to the end, I found myself doing the exact same thing and having this really intense private LOL with myself. <laughs> Just being like, oh, I was like, this, this was an accurate book recommendation. It was so good. And uh, 10 out of 10 agree on like Adrian Marie Brown. So good. I mean, how are you, sorry, one more note about In the Dream House. How are you going to write a book that is that ambitiously structured and still give us the narrative pleasure of a twist? She does it all. Like, she I does truly, it all. She does it all. She does it all. And it's a pleasure. Have... It's so yeah. good. So good. So good. So good. We love, we love ambitious writers. Um, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.